When you find your place, would you please stand? And we do that as we recognize uh, uh, God's word and himself need to be honored as we read his word. So that would be Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will set on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, one for another, as, uh, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And when I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer him, truly I say to you, as you did it to, uh, as, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your hatred of sin. Thank you for your holiness. And thank you for your perfect justice. We here at Faith Bible Church, thank you for exposing our minds to good preaching, good teaching, to prayer that moves the heart, Father, of the dead and raises them through the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for each person in here, Father, you're convicting of this message about to be preached. Uh, thank you for those that may not even know you personally, Father, that you might give them life. And Father, for those that do, God, wake us up, uh, grow us to a, a more holy walk with you. Uh, God, you are coming, and we anticipate your coming as a flash of lightning from the left to the right. You are coming, and you're going to shake the world and, and you're going to judge. Every man will answer how he lived his life. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this people. Uh, thank you for shepherding this flock. Uh, God, teach us each to deal 
radically with personal sin, to be aggressive in mind, thought, and deeds. Um, so just uh, pray you'd uh, take the rest of the service, use it for your glory, Father, and uh, we just uh, give you much honor in your holy name. Amen. Well, what is Jesus going to address with you when you stand before him at the judgment? What is Jesus going to address with you when you stand before him at the judgment? In a sense, we've seen the answer to that uh, in the last couple sections of Matthew 24 and 25 that's been oriented around that. This whole discourse has started with this question, well, when are these things going to happen? When's the destruction of the temple going to happen? When is um, the when are you going to come and the turn of the age? When's that all going to happen? And what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? When when is it going to happen? And what is the sign? And Jesus has addressed the the sign question first. Okay, here's the things in general you want to be aware of. You're looking out for the when question got answered in twenty four thirty six. No one knows. No one knows except the Father when this is going to happen. But then Jesus goes on to say, well, but even though you don't know the timing of when I'm going to come back, uh, when the Son of Man is going to come, here's how you live. Here's how you prepare. Here's how you uh, act in that time. And really, in a large measure, that the, the, to bring, boil it down, the call has been to perseverance. The call has been to faithfulness. The call has been to nourish fellow disciples. The call is to invest the teaching that has been given to you in the proclamation of the gospel and the teaching of the truths of Scripture to invest. That's what we saw last week with the talents, to invest that to others, to multiply disciples. So really, in a sense, we could ask that, answer that question. We get more of it today. But what is Jesus going to address when you stand before him in the judgment? And the answer is he's going to look at your works. He's going to look at your deeds. What did you do? Now, immediately, all of us are getting panicky. He's like, what? I thought we were Protestants here. We believe by salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone. Absolutely, we do. But what we have been talking about through Matthew, and even in this section in particular, is that when you come to Jesus, you come as you are. You come as a sinner. You lay down arms in repentance and faith without bringing anything at all to the table. And Jesus changes you. He saves you. He gives you a righteous standing before the Father in heaven, but then he changes you. He changes you such that you bear fruit, such that you live a life dedicated to him, seeking his interests, like we talked about last week in the parable of the talents. And that same framework is what we see today in the final section of Matthew 24 and 25. You see, Jesus has been talking about signs of his coming, mainly in chapter 24. And then in chapter 25, he's, he's talking about, well, okay, how do you live now in light of that? But in this final section, he gives the picture of what is that final coming going to look like? What's going to happen? What is the judgment from Jesus going to look like? And so as we enter our text this morning, the main idea is this. Prepare for Jesus' judgment by showing solidarity and service to Jesus' disciples. 
Prepare for Jesus' judgment by showing solidarity and service to Jesus' disciples. And the way this is going to work is uh, we're going to look at four parts. First, we're going to look at in verses 31 and 33 that Jesus sets up his judgment. Then we're going to look at how Jesus summons the righteous into his kingdom. Then we're going to look at how Jesus sentences the curse to eternal fire in verses 41 and 45. And then ending in verse 46, we're going to see that Jesus seals the eternal destinies of the nations. But all oriented around that idea, prepare for Jesus' judgment by showing solidarity and service to Jesus' disciples. So let's look at the first part. Jesus sets up his judgment. Jesus sets up his judgment. Look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, now, that is the setting. That is what has been discussed in chapter 24. Uh, and what, really, Jesus is picking up on uh, where he left off in chapter 24 of his coming. If you go back to chapter 24 in discussing, well, when are you going to come? When's the end of the age? We saw this scene in verses 29 through 31. He said this, immediately after the tribulation, the great distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth, or the tribes of the land, referring to Israel, we talked about that, will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect, his chosen, from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's the last time we kind of saw Jesus... You know, if you imagine the picture, the movie scene, right? Jesus is coming down. He's got all of his angels. He's coming in glory. It's unmistakable. It's happening. And that's where he left off. He hasn't really developed that scene from that part in 24 to this point. And now we get the other end of it in verse 31. That scene when Jesus is coming on the clouds, that scene from Daniel 7 that we've looked at so many times throughout our study in, in Matthew coming to earth with power and great glory and with all the retinue of angels coming with him. That's the scene that Jesus is referring to. Imagine that. What's going to happen? What's going to happen when he comes? Well, he says this in verse 31 in chapter 25. Then, at that time, he will sit on his glorious throne. What's the picture? The picture is, here is the king coming in all of his glory that he rightfully deserves. The rightful king, the rightful heir, not only to Israel, but to the whole world. And he's going to assume the throne. He's going to assume the throne. Now, you might ask, well, what throne? The Davidic throne. Remember, from the very beginning of Matthew, what has been the call? This is this is Jesus the Christ. The Christ is the chosen Davidic king, the ultimate Davidic king, the one from the seed of David who's going to rule over Israel and the whole world. That has been the argument of Matthew. He's proved it again and again and again. And Jesus has come. He's been rejected by his nation as king. He receives no kingdom upon coming to Jerusalem. In fact, he's going to get crucified and rejected, die, raise again, and he's going to ascend on high. But in none of that has Jesus assumed the Davidic throne. And you might be scratching your head a little bit and saying, well, whoa, 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 you know, you just said that, that Jesus dies, 
rises again, and he ascends, isn't Jesus reigning? Well, indeed he is. Indeed he is. But reigning where? Reigning where? I take a little bit of time to explain this, even at the outset of this passage, even though it's not the focus, just to give you a context for what is happening in this passage itself. Where does Jesus go when he ascends? Look at Matthew 26, 64, just a couple pages to the right. Jesus himself says, here's where I'm going to go. Once I die and I rise again, Jesus has already predicted that. Jesus says this in 26, 64. And this is in front of the high priest when he's being questioned. So we'll get there in a few weeks, months. We'll see. It's on the schedule. I just don't remember where. So 2664 says this. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And what is he saying? He's saying, look, from here on out, first, you're going you're gonna to see uh, the son being at the right hand of God. That's really what he's referring to. And if you were to go through the New Testament, you would see that phrase over and over and over and over and over again, referring back ultimately to Psalm 110, that the Messiah is going to sit at the right hand of God in heaven. So even if you go ahead to Revelation, go to Revelation just briefly. And again, we're doing this just to give you a context for what is happening in Matthew. We're taking a little bit of a aside to do this. But Jesus, upon his ascension sits at the right hand of the throne in heaven. That's what, uh, how Hebrews phrases it. And then in Revelation 3.21, we see Jesus again talking about this. And he's talking to his disciples and he's encouraging them to endure. And he says this in Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus conquered through his Life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And then where does he sit? He sits at the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven. The Father's throne. But you see even there, Jesus makes a distinction between his throne and the Father's throne. And even later in Revelation, it talks about the Lamb standing in the midst of the throne, the cosmic throne in heaven next to the Father. Jesus at the end of Matthew says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And indeed it has because Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the father to execute um, cosmic authority under his father. But that does not mean that he has assumed the Davidic throne, which is what Matthew is talking about in Matthew 25, 31. Because what does it mean to assume the Davidic throne? It means to rule over Israel and all the nations of the world. And you might say, well, wait a minute. If, it, aren't, if you're the cosmic king, don't you have rulership over Israel? Well, let's put it, give an illustration and let's give a first century illustration that might help you with this. The empire in charge of Israel in the first century is Rome. And Caesar, the emperor, is at the control of the whole of Palestine. But Caesar doesn't sit on the throne of Israel. At least at the beginning part of Matthew, Herod the Great does. Herod the Great sits on the throne of Israel. He's king of the Jews, purportedly so anyway. The emperor has ultimate control, but doesn't assume the specific throne. That's a similar sort of situation to what's going on with Jesus. Jesus has not yet assumed 
his rightful throne as ruler of the world. But he will. And the picture we get in Matthew 25, 31 is when he will. He will come with the clouds of heaven, with power and great glory, the retinue of angels, and he will assume the throne that has been promised, the throne that is rightfully his. And he will reign over Israel and all the nations of the world. It's what Psalm 2 talks about. Well, what's going to happen? We see this in verse 32. Okay, he, he assumes the throne. He is now enthroned as the Davidic king. What happens? Verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations. Now, we've seen kind of this picture throughout Matthew 24 and 25, and even earlier in Matthew, of gathering. Uh, there's been people gathered for judgment, and there's people, the elect, who've been gathered uh, for their celebration, for their reward, essentially. And that's what's happening here. It's just another picture of what has already been described in Matthew. This is the gathering by the angels of these two different groups, as we see. Before him will be gathered all the nations, meaning what? All the nations that are alive, all the nations that survive the cataclysm of the, uh, the, the, the abomination of desolation and the great distress that happens at that time. The people that survive, all the nations that survive, all of that, that are living on the earth, he's going to gather them all, and then he's going to separate people. The people of all the nations who have survived, he's going to separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, Sometimes this section is called the parable of the sheep and the goats, but this is not a parable. You know that, you notice that as we go on. It's a direct description of what is going to happen when Jesus comes again. There's a comparison here between a shepherd separating sheep and goats, and you're like, what's the deal with that? Like, what's the deal with the sheep and the goats, and what does that mean? Well, in Palestine, you go there, you've got sheep and you've got goats, but the reality is, in fact, if you look up some pictures online, uh, goats and sheep can look actually fairly similar. In fact, they can run together in the same herd. They can graze together over the land, and the shepherd will run both together. And then uh, depending on what the situation is, the shepherd will separate the two. But here's the reality is sheep, uh, sheep and goats can look quite similar at times. And so uh, it takes the trained eye of a shepherd to distinguish, oh, that's a sheep, that's a goat. That one goes there, that one goes there. And that's the comparison that's being drawn here. All superficial similarities are discerned. And he's placing the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Now, what we've seen elsewhere in Matthew is the angels do the separating. You go back to Matthew 13, you go back even to Matthew 24, the angels are the ones who gather the elect, or the angels are the ones in back in Matthew 13 who separate out the evil from among the righteous. And I think this is just a summary way of saying Jesus is using angels as his agents to separate people into these two groups and only two groups. All the nations that have survived the cataclysm and the wars and everything else that has happened, everyone who's alive, they get separated into the sheep and to the goats. Place the sheep on his right. So mind you, he's on his throne. We're in the throne room, judgment seat, territory, he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. That is the setup 
before Jesus' judgment. He separates the sheep and the goats. They might look alike superficially, but now, just like we saw the parables of the fish in Matthew 13 or the parables of the wheat and the tares, they look superficially similar, but now the shepherd is able to separate them out into two groups. All the nations, Gentile and Jew alike, separated. Now, I will make a quick note, and you can look into this further if you want. Your Bible might say the heading of this section titled the final judgment. That's what my ESV Bible says. This is actually not the final judgment. If you look at Revelation 19 through 20, it's very clear that Jesus comes back, he judges, there's a thousand years, and then there's another judgment. This is not the final judgment. This is the judgment at the beginning of Jesus' kingdom. And we see that because at the beginning, what does he say? He assumes the Davidic throne, and he is judging as ruler of the world as the Davidic king. Even already, before we go on to how Jesus is going to develop this, Take stock and just think about this. Jesus will one day come again and assume the Davidic throne of all the nations. Now, sometimes we just say things like that, but just think about the reality of that. It's going to be like lightning in the sky, said earlier in Matthew 24. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be magnificent. Everyone's going to see it, and everyone is going to see Jesus on the throne of this world as world ruler, rightful world ruler just world ruler. Do you look forward to that day with joy? Does that freak you out or does that make you joyful? Because that is what this is supposed to do. That is what's looking ahead. All of this has been directed towards the disciples. And yes, Jesus is urging them, be prepared, persevere. But it's this moment. He's coming. He's going to reign over all and it's going to be a marvelous kingdom. Look forward to that day with joy. Hold on to that reality despite all the things which happen in the world makes it seem impossible. Think back, these people who are alive that make it to this point, they've gone through the great tribulation. Uh, uh, evil people and the saints alike have persevered to this point. They've made it. They've held out for this moment because this is worth it. This is what makes it all worth it, this moment. Jesus will be able to see through all the lies and deception and play acting and will ju know just where to put people. The question to you is, are you on the right side of history? Do you rejoice in the coming of King Jesus? You know, we hear that phrase, well, you better get on the right side of history. Here's where history is going. Here's where progress is taking us. Well, it might look that way, but here's where history is going. The enthronement of the God-man the ultimate Davidic king over the world? Are you on the right side of history? Have you surrendered? Have you sworn allegiance and repentance and faith to King Jesus? And even though I mentioned, well, where's Jesus right now? Yes, he's ascended. He is at right this minute. He's looking down on all of his churches and on this church too. And he is at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is at the part of the cosmic throne, sitting on the throne with his father in heaven and even though I say that, and he hasn't assumed the Davidic throne yet, it's not as if Jesus, Jesus is idle until he comes back. What is Jesus doing right now? He is head over the church. He is the active high priest who is the one mediator between God and man. He shares cosmic authority on the throne with his father. And the question to you is, have you had dealings with this one mediator between God and man? 
Have you laid down arms, turning allegiance from sin and self and bowing the knee in allegiance and faith and repentance to Jesus Christ? You're not going to be able to do it on the day he comes back, to do it quickly. The time is now to repent and believe and follow King Jesus so that this day is a day of joy for you. So we've seen first that Jesus sets up his judgment, but next we see this in verses 34 through 40. Jesus summons the righteous into his kingdom. Jesus summons the righteous into his kingdom. Look at verse 34. Then the king, he's been called a shepherd, now he's called a king. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, invitation, come, you who are blessed by my father. Now we've seen some language for blessing in Matthew. You go back to the Beatitudes, it's usually translated blessed are uh, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a different word for blessed than the word that's used for blessed here. When we talk about the Beatitudes, it's more the idea of happy, flourishing. You have a favorable state for some reason or another. And that's what the Beatitude blessing is like. This is different. This is actually the pronouncement of blessing. This is saying God has pronounced blessing on these folks on the right, these sheep. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. How are they blessed? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See, the reality is, is these are, as we find out, these are disciples of Jesus. The sheep are disciples of Jesus. But what is amazing here is the reason they're sheep, the reason they're disciples of Jesus is they have been blessed by God from the foundation of the world. And not only have they been blessed, they've been blessed in the sense that the kingdom thread that has been uh, for all of human history from Genesis to Revelation, that kingdom, even Jesus, though he's reigning on the throne, that kingdom is not really, in a sense, ultimately designed for Jesus. It's designed for his people designed for his people to enjoy him as king, to enjoy the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as we go farther past the millennial kingdom into the new heavens and the new earth. It's designed for them to enjoy, prepared by, for them to enjoy. And Jesus, this moment, he's inviting them, come, it's ready. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This isn't just an, a last-minute decision. This has been prepared before creation was put into existence. This whole plan culminating in this point. The kingdom is ready. Inherit the kingdom. Take possession. This is rightfully yours because the Father has blessed you. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And now Jesus, that's his sentence. That's what the king is saying. Okay, come and inherit you on my right, the sheep. Come and inherit. But why? What's the basis? What's the support for him making that determination? Verse 35. See that little word for? It introduces all of this string of reason and support that Jesus is saying. Let me give you support for why you, the sheep, should inherit this kingdom. Now, we've already seen the basis, the basis for why the sheep are to inherit this kingdom is the Father's choice, the Father's preparation, the Father's blessing. That is the basis. But as these sheep, 
these disciples live out their lives, that basis is going to live itself out. That blessing is going to live itself out. That discipleship is going to live itself out in these ways. You can think of this as evidence showing that people are sheep, genuine sheep. Verse 35, four, I was hungry. So this is the king. Keep in mind, he's on his throne, like glorious scene. This is the king saying this. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, let the reality of what's happening here hit you. The king who's on this glorious throne, who's obviously the wealthiest person, the person in most power, most control, who's the most clothed in glory, the most non-destitute, non-poor person, the king is saying, I was in these conditions, in all of these distressed conditions. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I, I, I didn't have clothes. I was a stranger. I, I was all this thing. So it's like, whoa, how did that happen? That's weird because that's totally opposite from the way he is now enthroned. So how has this king looked this way? And what the king is saying is, I looked this way, I was in this point of distress, and you, the sheep, those on my right, you cared for me in each of those situations. You ministered to me. You met my need in each of those situations, which, whoa, that's a big deal. Like if the king was in distress and you cared for the king, and now he's enthroned, you're in a really good situation, right? You cared for him in the greatest distress, and now he's in his most exalted position. But there's a question. There's a question that the righteous have, the sheep have. Verse 37, then the righteous, and don't miss that. This is the, they've been called the sheep. They've been called those who are on the right. They've been called those from among the nations. But now they're recharacterized as the righteous. Well, how, why are they called the righteous? Well, because of all the things they did. All the things they did for the king. They demonstrated their allegiance to the king by caring for the king. And so they demonstrated their righteousness, a practical righteousness, a lived out righteousness. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Now, what are they surprised at? And what are they asking? They're not surprised that they did those things. They're asking the question, when did we see you? You, the king. They're not surprised that they did these activities. They're surprised that what you're saying we saw you and we did this. When did we, when did we see you? When did, we, when did that happen? When did we see you, the king, the son of man? When did we see you and meet those needs? Because that's what you're saying, king. That's what you're saying is that uh, we saw you, we ministered to you in your distress. How did that happen? What did that look like? We don't remember it. Not saying we didn't do these things, we're just saying, when did we see you doing it? 
What does he say? Verse 39, sorry, verse 40. And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, which is Jesus' way of grabbing attention and highlighting what he's about to, to say. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, who is he talking about? First, notice the word these. These. Well, what does that mean? Remember the scene. Got the nations, all the nations that have lived through everything, sitting there right before him, separated. So when you use the word these in that kind of context, he's saying, uh, yeah, the these are among one of these groups. And in fact, as we're going to find out, the these are the sheep. Okay, he uses the word these. So it's people that are standing right there, the judgment. What else does he call them? Calls them brothers. Calls the people that got ministered to brothers. Every other time, uh, except for talking about Jesus' literal you know, mother, mother and brothers from his uh, earthly life, every other time and regularly, he calls his disciples brothers. So that's who he's talking about right here. He's talking about disciples. Disciples that were in these kinds of distress. Disciples that were naked, were strangers, were, um, were hungry, were thirsty, all of these things. He's talking about disciples. Sometimes you hear this in an, um, as if uh, he's talking to my brothers and he's saying the least of these as if there's some kind of category of distressed or poor people in general. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The grammar is very clear. He's talking to about disciples. The least of these brothers that got ministered to are disciples. People that have allegiance to Jesus. Now, what about the least idea? Why does he use the word least? Well, one of the things we've seen in Matthew, one of the things we've seen in Matthew is that uh, sometimes Jesus will liken disciples to children, and he'll actually kind of say, well, there's this disciple, and um, he's, uh, they're, they're like, a, like a little child. They're um, maybe um, they're least in the sense of like least in rank, least in maturity, least in role. Let me give you an illustration of this. This isn't the first time that Jesus has talked like this. Go to Matthew 10. Go back to Matthew 10. Matthew 10 is talking, he's sending out the, the 12 on their mission to Israel to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. But a lot of what Jesus says in Matthew 10 also extends beyond that. It's anticipating what's going to happen uh, when the gospel goes global to all the nations. But Jesus ends this, this uh, discourse in Matthew 10, he ends it in Matthew 10, 40 through 42, and we get a lot of similar language. Whoever receives you, talking to the disciples, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cold cup of water because he is a disciple, truly I will say to you, he will by no means lose his reward, which is a way of saying he's going to get a really big reward. Okay? What do you see there? You see kind of external ranks. Oh, you got a prophet. Oh, you got a righteous person. But then it just goes down to regular old disciple. 
and they get ministered to just because they're a disciple of Jesus. A least one. That's the sense in which Jesus is talking in his final judgment. You encounter these people of, in distress, these disciples in distress. They're naked, they're hungry, they're, they're uh, not well clothed. And we'll talk about why in a minute. But you encounter these people and they just look like the least. They look like scum of the world. They look like nothing. Which again is juxtaposed with what? The king's exaltation. But these are brothers of the king. These are disciples, brothers and sisters of the king, bound to him. And what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25, 40, king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. What is he saying? What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you didn't literally see me. You didn't literally see uh, the son of man, you didn't literally see the king, but you saw one of my brothers in distress. You saw one of my brothers or sisters in distress. You saw one of my disciples in distress. Why are they in distress, do you think? Isn't that kind of interesting? Like, what's the deal? Why are they not well clothed? Why are they, you know, uh, why are they hungering? Why are they thirsting? Why are they strangers? Well, remember, when is this set? This is set right after the great distress. When Jesus has already said in Matthew 24, his disciples are going to have to persevere through a lot of hardship. When the entire world, every government, every society is against his disciples. And so you can kind of begin to understand why would his disciples be considered, why would they be hungering? Why would they be thirsting? Because they've been persecuted. I mean, if you even look through Christian history, as Jesus has already prepared his disciples for, that's the case, that they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're despised by the world, they're strangers. And Jesus is saying, all right, you did it. You received them, you received their message, you showed solidarity with them, and they have solidarity with me, so you showed solidarity with me, the king. Jesus credits that as being done to himself. And he's saying, that's the evidence that's the evidence that you are sheep, that you've been blessed by my Father from before the foundation of the world, and now come, enter the kingdom. Enter the kingdom. Now, before we move further, let's draw a few applications from this. If you are in Christ, if you have repented and entrusted yourself to Christ, you have, uh, you have turned allegiance from sin and self, your allegiance, your life is oriented around Christ. Christ is at the center of your life. You are blessed by the Father, and the kingdom that will come has been prepared for you before the foundation of the world. That should astound you and increase your joy and help you to endure that the kingdom that is coming is, is for, for Christ's followers, for those who are in Christ. You've been blessed by the Father, the foundation of the world, the whole kingdom narrative, the whole kingdom preparation has been for you. Yes, Jesus is going to be the king, and you're going to be enjoying him for all eternity. He's the centerpiece. He's the treasure. But everything else, it's perfectly set up for you to enjoy Jesus. It's perfectly set up for you to enjoy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. And you need to hold on to for that, to endure, 
to endure when days are tough, to endure when sin seems to win, to endure when darkness in the world seems to win, when persecution is hard, when it feels like your faith is going to fail, hang on because the kingdom and the king are great. If you're a disciple of Christ, we could say this, this is very clear from Matthew and from this section, be ready to be in one of the distressed states that Christ mentions. Be ready to be hungry. Be ready to be thirsty. Be ready to be a stranger. Be ready to be naked, poorly clothed. Be ready to be sick. No one else is going to visit you. Be ready to be in prison because of, the, because of Jesus. Don't think it's strange when that happens. But hang on because the kingdom is good. So that's from the distressed disciples' side. But then the other side, if you are truly chosen and blessed by the Father and are to inherit the kingdom, then you're going to demonstrate that intangible solidarity and care for even the least disciples of Jesus. If you're in Christ, if you love the king, then you're going to love his people. It's that simple. If you love the king and you have allegiance to the king, you're going to love his people. You're going to be devoted to his people. You're going to care for the, even notice, these aren't spiritual concerns directly, right? These are physical things like hunger and thirst and sickness and all of these things. You're going to care for your fellow disciples, even when everyone else in the world, like that's a dangerous thing to even care, to associate with a fellow disciple when it's dangerous to do that. You're going to do it. And you're going to have the courage to do that. Why? Because you're so great? No, because Jesus is so great. And that distressed disciple and me, we share a bond. We share a bond in Christ. And so I'm going to show solidarity and service in very practical ways to disciples. Now, you might be scratching your head at this moment and saying, well, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Aren't we supposed to do good to the poor in general? Aren't we supposed to be charitable uh, in general? Absolutely. Paul says it this way in Galatians 6.10, do good to people, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Yeah, do good to everyone, but make sure you show care, especially to the household of faith, because in so doing, you are serving the king. Now, uh, how does that look like today? Well, we could say it like this. This is particularly played out in local church membership. A couple of weeks ago, Emily gave her testimony and she quoted from this passage and rightfully so, because this is how we love one another in the church, how we ought to love one another. Of course, we are oriented around helping one another to follow Jesus uh, to love Jesus, which that's a spiritual concern, but we are also concerned about each other's tangible, physical concerns, because at that base level, if we say we love one another, we say we love the king, we ought to be ready to serve one another in very tangible things. We can't just say, as James talks about, be warmed and be filled, and then you just send someone on their way without meeting the needs of the body. He says, what good is that? Jesus thinks the same thing. It's not very good at all. It's worthless. Got to show tangible care and concern. We do that, we commit to that as a local church membership to know one another, to know what needs we have, even physical, very concrete needs, and we seek to meet them because in so doing, we love Jesus. We're showing that we share a bond as brothers and sisters in Jesus. 
It means when strangers and visitors will come in, new people, which we have, uh, I think uh, this course of this year, we've had well over 100 visitors walk through these doors already. We welcome them. We seek to know them. Or maybe it's someone that's across the room. Maybe you're sitting back there and maybe someone's sitting up there and it's like, well, that's, it's not like this is one church and this is another. You should be mingling together, knowing one another. Do you know everyone in this room? Could you know their needs and where they're at and how to pray for them? That's what membership looks like. And welcoming strangers and visitors as they come in as well. And what does Jesus say? Do it for the least disciple. People who have no status, people who may be hard to work with or immature in their faith. You have true Christians that are very immature and very hard to work with. But Jesus says, show it to the least of them. Show that care and concern. Why? Because they're easy? Because they're likable? No, but because they follow Jesus. They are bound to the king. You're bound to the king, so you're bound to them. Because you love him. So we've seen that Jesus has set up his judgment. We've seen that Jesus summons the righteous into his kingdom. And then we see that Jesus sentences the cursed to eternal fire. Look at verse 41. So he's dealt with those on his right, those on his left. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. It's literally go from me. Get away. Go away. You cursed. Cursed by whom? Cursed by God. Into the eternal fire. So we've got a parallel here, right? We, the sheep were come in, come into the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. You, you righteous, those blessed by my father. Here we get the exact opposite. Depart, go away. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for who? For the devil and his angels. Isn't that interesting? The kingdom was prepared for the, the sheep. It was prepared for the righteous. What is the eternal fire of judgment? God's judgment is prepared for, for the devil and his angels. But you're going to share that with the devil and his angels. You're going to share that fate, the goats, those on the left, with the devil and his angels. Why? What basis? Well, Jesus does the same thing. He gives us a little four, verse 42. Four. Let's look at the evidence. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And again, the king is saying, you saw me in these situations and you did nothing. Would you imagine now the scene again, right? The juxtaposition of the king is on his throne. He, is, he is, has all power and authority on earth. And then you're confronted with that reality. Wait, I saw the king in these states and I did nothing? What does he mean? We get their objection. Verse 44. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when, when, we, when we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Like, when did we see you? Same question as the righteous, isn't it? It's the exact same question. When? When did we see you? When did we see you looking like this? And we did nothing. When did that happen? Same answer. Verse 45. Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not, 
do it to one of the least of these. And again, he's talking about disciples. He's just summing it up. Least of the disciples. You did not do it to me. You saw a fellow brother or sister of mine. You saw a a disciple of mine in one of these states of distress. Hungry, thirsty, unwell clothed, a stranger. And you did nothing. And I take that personally. Jesus says, I take that personally because I have solidarity and unity with my brothers and sisters. And that's why you're sentenced. You're showing you're a cursed people. And you're sentenced to the eternal fire, not prepared for you, prepared for the devil and his angels, but because of your displaying, you've been cursed by God. You've displayed that you have no... Notice, notice the issue here. They don't minister to Jesus' disciples. Which means they don't minister to the king. It's ultimately about what does it display about your allegiance to the king? It's not just arbitrary, oh, you didn't do this and, and I wasn't there. No, it's these are my disciples. These are my people. They're, they're my people. They're, they've sworn allegiance to me as a king and you did nothing for them. Well, what does that show about your allegiance to me? You may say, as we've seen elsewhere in Matthew, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name? But if you don't share tangible care and solidarity for Jesus' people, what does that show about your actual allegiance to Jesus? That's the issue. That's the issue. And it earns them a place in eternal fire and judgment. Which leads us to the last bit. In verse 46, Jesus seals the eternal destinies of the nations. What's the result? Verse 46, and these, referring to the goats, those on the left, will go away into eternal punishment. The punishment is eternal. People don't go to hell and then eventually snuff out of existence. No, Jesus here says the punishment is eternal. Why is it eternal? Because sin is not just doing naughty things. It is a slap in the face to an infinitely holy and worthy God, which is an infinite offense, which deserves an infinite punishment. There are only two ways that that punishment can be averted. One is if the Son of Man, the Jesus Christ, bore that eternal punishment on the cross, the eternal weight of wrath that you and I deserve, he bore on the cross for his people. He is God incarnate, so he has an eternal value and can bear an eternal weight of wrath. And if you repent and place your faith in him, that wrath can be averted. But if you don't take that option, the only option to bear the eternal offense for your sin before a holy God is to endure an eternal punishment, ages upon ages, millennia upon millennia, with no rest, day or night, before a just and holy God and a just and holy Jesus exacting his just retribution on you as a rebel against his reign. That is what hell is. But it doesn't have to be that way because notice how it ends. Those will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, those who have repented and placed their faith in Jesus, they didn't bring anything to the table. They came laying down arms 
saying, yes, I'm a rebel. I wanted to live my own life. I wanted to live for my sin, laying down arms. I repent and I acknowledge that only you, Jesus, can save me and I swear allegiance to you. I entrust myself wholly to you and your work on the cross, your righteous life lived in my place and I follow you. I follow you in allegiance and I obey you, not perfectly, but because of how you've changed me, the righteous into eternal life. Beware that you don't show. Notice, remember who Jesus is addressing here? Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his people and saying, why? Why is he telling them all this? Because he knows that those who claim him as disciple will be tempted to not show solidarity and service to his disciples. That's the temptation for Matthew's Jewish audience. Remember the dilemma in Matthew's Jewish audience, right? Uh, Here you've got some Jews who have lived one way their whole life, and then the Messiah comes, and he's not what they expect, and yet they believe him. They believe he's the king, but what is that going to mean? Are they going to show solidarity to the Christians, to these Christians that are now coming in from the nations as well as the Jews? Are we going to show solidarity and service there, or are we going to go show solidarity and service to an apostate Judaism? That's their dilemma, and Jesus is saying that's going to be the temptation for you, disciples. It's going to be temptation for Matthew's Jewish audience in particular. And what is it? It's a warning. Beware, if you do not show solidarity and service to Jesus' disciples, if you don't, then you're not showing these things to Jesus and you show that you really don't belong to him. No matter what you say, no matter how much you know, what do you do? What do you do shows who you are. When Christians are belittled and despised, when they are persecuted by everyone and by the state, by everyone against them, will you still care for them? Gather with them? Show solidarity with them even when it's risky? Why? Because you love King Jesus, or are you going to play it safe? Are you going to save your own skin? That's what Jesus is warning about. What drives the right response is love for Jesus, commitment to Jesus, seeing him as the center of your life, your joy. Your life doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to Jesus, and you live it out to serve him, which means you're going to serve others. Prepare for Jesus' judgment by showing solidarity and service to his disciples. Let's pray. Father, make us this people. Jesus, we we want to follow you like this. We love you. You are the only one who can save us from eternal cursing, eternal wrath, eternal punishment. You're the only way. And we recognize we are rebels. Lord, we confess the ways even we've rebelled against you this week, even though we claim your name. But we thank you that you have patience, you have mercy. And Lord, that you are the one mediator between God and man, and you are the one who justifies the ungodly. And Lord, we thank you that you, through your spirit indwelling us, change us, make us this people that 
know one another intimately, know our needs intimately, and serve one another in very practical and tangible ways, even as we seek to encourage one another to follow Jesus better. Make us a church like that. Make us a people like that. Because we love you. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity, even now as we transition to communion. What a very tangible display of solidarity and unity in the church because we follow you, because of your death and resurrection. Lord, when we now partake in a pleasing way to you, may you be honored as we partake in your supper. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.